Hello and welcome to this episode of The Leading Conversation. I'm Tom Dawson Scroop and I'm joined as always by former Blitzbot captain Kyle Brown. Today I'm super excited to introduce you to someone who I hold in incredibly high regard, Professor Damien Hughes. Damien is an author, change agent, speaker and lecturer from the north of England, which his accent gives away, who's worked with many sports entities and businesses around the world. His books, Liquid Thinker and The Barcelona Way, have been two of my favorite all-time reads. Damien has a way of sharing anecdotes and theories that leave you asking for more, yet he says things so simply that you want to go and apply things absolutely immediately. Having spent significant time with some top leaders and teams around the world, either working with them or researching them for books and articles, he's not short of a story. More recently, Damien has started a brilliant podcast called The High Performance Podcast, which has been a chart topper in the UK. I recommend you listening to them. You'll hear the absolute best of Damien in this conversation as he doesn't pretend to know it all, but keeps making Kyle and I think about how we lead, how we should think about leading and where we do, and where we might have made some big mistakes. What a joy. Please do continue to give us feedback and follow us on Instagram on the.leadingconversation and on both Kyle and my personal social media channels. Enjoy. Great. What another week uh, we have here. Carl, lovely to see you. I know you've been busy with your um, launch of your coffee, um, something to do with your, with your coffee brand. How are you? I'm so glad you're deeply involved that you know there's something happening. <laughs> uh, I too forgot. I couldn't remember what it was. Uh, we have, we, we're just opening a little boutique grocery on a wine farm called Netlingshof, just outside of Stellenbosch. So yeah, that's going pretty well. Um, you know, helpful leather and we're launching on Friday. Actually, so pretty keen. New rebranding, flash logo, it's all going to look pretty good. No, awesome, awesome. Damien, your love for coffee? Do you have a love for coffee? I do, but I, I think I'd probably offend Kyle and any <laughs> coffee aficionados by... <laughs> so my taste stretches to like Nescafe or something like that. Um, we actually we have an agreement that any which way you want to drink your coffee, you drink it. So uh, if you're happy with that... Um, you know, maybe we'll... <laughs> but, I mean, I am, but I also know it's pure ignorance that I know that I don't know a lot about coffee. Yeah. So I'd like to explore it and understand more. Yeah, I mean, so the, the, no, the idea to... tomorrow is that we actually do a little bit of education to show people that, like, we've got this term here that it's all, oh, that's really fancy coffee, but it's it's not that difficult, really. Right, okay, yeah. But, I, but it, it's a perfect example of... The Dunning-Kruger law that I'm at peak idiot stage <laughs> of, uh, of the law about coffee. Perfectly okay. With but I'm happy place. to. Go- yeah, no, 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 I'm not. I'll, I'll happily travel into the valley of humbleness yeah. to uh, find out more. So I'll rely on you for that one, Kyle. One day, one day. <laughs> so here you can hear um, a beautiful northern accent coming all the way from lockdown in Manchester. Uh, Damien, thank you so much for for spending time with us. I've. Um, I don't, I don't want to say long been a fan, but we've chatted and I've, I've loved reading your books uh, from Liquid Thinker to The Barcelona Way. I've followed you and it took us a while to get in touch with each other, but I've, I've really appreciated our conversation since then. So thanks for spending time this morning. No, thank you for the invite, Tom. And, you know, the, the feelings reciprocated. I'm a huge fan of yours and the work that you, that, that you do both in the corporate world and in the sporting world. So it's a real honor to, to be invited on. So thank you. And, and no, thanks thank to you as well. Thanks, thanks, Damien. So um, we we gonna start with the first question. Um, so there'll be a there'll be an opening question and there'll be a closing question. The first question is: What value 
do you like to be around and why? What value do you most like to be around and why? Wow, that's a brilliant question. Um, kindness. Kindness is the answer to that. Um, and that, it's a small word, but it contains an awful lot of, um, of, of resulting behaviours that come from that value. I think when people act with kindness to each other, I think it, it, it is the foundation of curiosity, of decency, of emotional intelligence, of um, cohesion, uh, of and and of people working really well to uh, together. So kindness to me has been something that um, I've come to over the last few years. I would say as a uh, as an understanding that being kind, starting with being it to yourself, and then I think that then gives you the capacity to start being kind and understanding to others. Kindness, kindness uh, to yourself. Just elaborate a little bit more on that. Well, I think it's incredibly easy to be pretty brutal with ourselves, especially in sort of the nature of the work that we do. There's always something that can be done. There's always something that can be done better. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know the nature of the work that you do uh, is around sort of forcing people to reflect and work out how could we do something better. And that's an incredibly valuable skill because that's the seed of improvement. But I think doing that in a place of uh, accepting that sometimes we get things wrong, sometimes things don't go as well as we'd intend them to do, or maybe do as fast as we want them to. And sort of accepting that I think kindness gives us that acceptance to, uh, to be able to receive feedback and then move forward with it in a positive, constructive way. So, I mean, I'll give you a personal example, I think, and I say to you, I came to this quite late, I think over the years, um, I've had a couple of times where I haven't been particularly kind to myself in terms of uh, listening to myself when I've been tired or exhausted or um, getting close to burnout. Um, And I've sort of carried on pushing myself. You know, it's this idea of man up or, you know, just keep going, stop making excuses. And I think on um, the last occasion I did that is a number of years ago, I ended up uh, contracting meningitis um, and part of it was because I just worked myself to a point that my immune system was so depleted I was open for an illness and unfortunately got something like that and I think I think it's a really powerful um, lesson for me to remember it and, 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 and it was brought home quite strongly um, I had recently interviewed Johnny Wilkinson uh, the rugby player and he spoke um, uh, um, about an example where he got 14 consecutive injuries and he said it was like nature kept coming along and smacking him to say, you're not listening, you're not being kind to yourself and then he'd push himself harder next time and then he'd break down within half an hour of the injury and then he said he still wasn't getting the message. He said it took 14 consecutive injuries until he realised that maybe he had to change the way that he was pushing himself. And so... It really resonated with me, that example, because I could recognise that sometimes I think we have this internal narrative of keep going, keep going, work harder, do more. You know, you're not doing fast enough. And I think it can lead to uh, some pretty dark places. Um, It was very interesting. Tom and I were actually just speaking, you know, sort of prepping before we we chatted now. And one of the things we spoke about now was progression. You know, we're constantly seeking progression, but we don't have, we don't give our 
ourselves a little bit of time, that kindness to ourselves, because we're always like exactly what you're saying, we're always so hard on ourselves. You must go forward, you must do something. And we, we, we were relating on the fact that like if we're not progressing, you feel like something's wrong. You feel like you're doing poorly. But sometimes it's just the nature of the event around you where you can't just shove through the whole time. You have to wait it out, reflect. Maybe it's a time to uh, recover a little bit, heal a little bit before you can move on again. Um, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I think it's a really powerful concept that you're talking about there, Kyle. I think I think this idea that we're caught up in a world of... So, uh, like in business, for example, we've always got to be growing. Do you know what I mean? Like a business goes, oh, well, we need to get another percentage growth next year. You go, why do you? Like, why do you need to do that? Or it's like in, uh, 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 or I think like in sport, the narrative of you don't like you don't settle, you keep going. It's that relentlessness, and I think we like that kind of narrative can be really inspiring. But to be in the middle of it sometimes and forget that it also comes with kindness uh, and 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 patience, I think can can cause a lot of uh, mental health issues. Yeah, yeah, I actually. Um it's cool that you, you I mean the very first thing you said is kindness because I, I did a I actually did a, a sort of Instagram live chat last night on a different topic on a topic of gender based violence and one of the questions towards the end was what am I doing sort of being a father of two kids and you know what am I doing going forward and how am I raising my kids in a way that I don't perpetuate this gender based violence thing and the very first thing that came to mind or the, you know, the underlying theme of what I've been trying to teach, especially my son, is kindness. Kindness through everything that he does. Kindness to himself, kindness to his little sister. And I said, having a little sister is an absolute blessing because kindness is key. You know, he, she's little, she's small, and he has to be kind with her. Kind words, uh, kind hands. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was funny. Just last night I spoke about this, this, this kindness and it's, all, wow. it's awesome to hear you talk well, about it. Yeah, and I think, I, I mean, the example you offer about children um, is really powerful. I mean, I, 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 I've got two children myself um, that are uh, 11 and coming up for eight. And I think I think this is when I say I've come to it over the last few years. I think when you start having children and you start sending them out into the world and they come home and they talk about what wounds them is when somebody is unkind to them. Do you know what I mean? If they're in the playground and somebody says something unpleasant or... Are, are unkind and, and, and you can see how in that moment it hurts them so you say well you need to do something different and then I think it's important that you role model that behaviour to them as well because you know nobody follows a hypocrite including our children so I think uh, that's another another driver to come to that conclusion uh, that, that, that kindness counts yeah Thanks, Jamie. I love that question because you get such an insight into the person immediately, you know. Um, so going into Damien Hughes, the person, um, and this might be a selfish question because I feel like I've, I've struggled with this as well. How do you explain what it is that you do with teams and organizations? Because we know you're a professor and um, motivational speaker, author, but how do you explain to people what it is that you actually do when you work with teams and organizations? Yeah, that's like the six million dollar question, isn't it? Because <laughs> I think uh, I um, I think sometimes uh, it's about working in the shadows, and I think if you're not uh, like to work effectively, you've got to be in the shadows of doing the nature of what we do. So sometimes it uh, it's not always so evident. So I think it's important to be able to try and explain it. 
the essence of it is uh, I tend to work with leaders or head coaches uh, to look at how do you create a high-performing culture and culture is such an ambiguous abstract word that people but everybody viscerally knows when they're in a good culture they can feel it equally when they go into a culture that you describe in these pejorative terms as bad or toxic you know that as well so my job is to try and um, articulate what is culture what and and on and what do we want and how do we then create an environment that allows everybody within it to flourish or perform at their very best so a lot of the work informs pretty much everything that then taps into because if you if if coaches are serious about making this a competitive advantage it should inform everything they do from their own decision to be a part of it um, how they recruit how they select how they promote how they exit people from the organization uh, the development of people uh, the way they speak the messages they deliver even down to the sort of posters that they put on the wall should all be aligned so what I found and most of my learning has been through making terrible mistakes <laughs> over the years but what I found is that um, when I work with teams I um, that's I was very deliberate there in saying I work with the coaches as opposed to necessarily the players and the reason for that is that I do work with the playing group but I but my experience has been that if I have to stand up in front of um, a dressing room full of players and address them and we talk about this topic uh, at best I reckon you'll probably get about 70% buy-in and part of that is down to lack of credibility that I don't I'm not a coach I don't play say rugby for example so I've got no pedigree in that sport so some players will just go what do you know um, so, but whereas when the head coach stands up and delivers the same message he'll get 90 to 95% buy-in simply because uh, he wields the power of selection and contracts and things like that so I found working in the shadows and getting your ideas in the bloodstream of an organisation is most effective by working with coaches uh, and, 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 and the support staff uh, Damien have, have you ever have you ever had times when those expectations of what you should do and what you shouldn't do have got blurred or it hasn't worked or got a little bit complicated? Yeah, very much. And I think, again, an, another big learning that's come from uh, from those kind of mistakes or those experiences has been um, uh, ambiguity is the enemy. And that's and that's true in, uh, across so many uh, um, factors, Tom. So when I talk about being ambiguous uh, about a role. Um, so sometimes you'll go into organisations and it's almost like a tick, spot, uh, tick box exercise that that they feel that if they can say that you're working there and you're addressing culture, they've addressed culture, but they don't necessarily want to follow through with their expectations. Or you go into a, uh, an organisation that the other thing that sometimes, in my experience, often happens is the topic of culture gets addressed in sporting teams twice. Uh, one in pre-season when they've got time and they've got meeting slots to fill and then the second time it gets addressed is when they lose a few games and they're in what you might double crisis and then one of the solutions is oh it must be the culture let's fix that so you often come in and it's almost like a firefighting mode uh, so those are occasions where 
maybe expectations are misaligned where either they're doing it just to tick the box at the start of pre-season and think that that's addressed it or you're coming in to try and in in the, in abbreviated commas fix something when it, it's perceived to be broken so mm. there are often occasions when it happens but it um that that misalignment can uh, can be catastrophic um and i've learned now um the power of sometimes just saying no and walking away you know that if i don't feel that it, it that there's a genuine commitment to see this through or you feel that it's uh, uh it's it, it's simply about like painting uh the leaves of the tree rather than going to the uh, uh, the roots of it um, my experience now has been learn a couple of uh, uh, tripwires or signals that say to you, probably just walk away without having to lead to conflict. There was a really nice way of uh, articulating this because I'm conscious that um, that can sometimes come across as aggressive or, or, or arrogant even to say, oh, I learn to walk away. And it's not intended to be. It's just that... Um, I, I wouldn't want to waste anybody's time and I wouldn't want them to waste mine either in terms of doing this. And recently on the podcast, we interviewed a lady, called, uh, a, lady um, a man called um, Mauricio Pochettino, the Argentinian coach. Yeah. And he was talking about this ability to, to uh, when ambiguity occurs. And he had just a really beautiful, what felt like quite a gentle way of talking about this, that he said, you know what, sometimes you'll go into a culture that's not right for you, but it doesn't mean that you're right and the culture's wrong, or it doesn't mean the culture's wrong and you're right. It just means that you both don't complement each other. And he said, and if you can understand that early enough, you can both walk away as friends without having to go in there and create conflict or find yourself in, uh, uh, in, uh, in difficult, abrasive conditions. And that, to me, really articulated quite powerfully that sometimes you can go into an environment that, that where neither of you is going to be best suited. And if you go to the source of that, it's often ambiguity, whether it's about role or expectations or, or, uh, or behaviours. But that's super interesting, isn't it? Because if you think about, like, you know, often teams... Will get, I'll take the Kevin Peterson example. You know, South African guy, played for England... T- scored 10,000 runs and then basically got asked to leave from the team because he was no longer a cultural fit. Now, a lot of people will criticize and say, you know, you need to find a place for every player. You need to make sure that everyone's individuality can come through. What I'm hearing from you is actually maybe there are times when there isn't a fit and you're better off just saying, you know what, we don't work together. How, how, do, you, how do you work with that sort of complexity around got this great player, uh, uh, even if you go with your Zlatan Ibrahimovic at Barcelona, which you wrote about in your book, like, how, how, what do you, how do you navigate that? It's a really good question, but then I think it comes back to, to answer that question. You need to come back and say, well, what, ta- I, like, and again, this is part of the nature of the role that I do is, first of all, articulating, well, what type of culture do we have? So rather than just leave the question as in, we have a good or a bad culture and you, and, you, and you view it through those binary terms, you say, no, no, hang on, there's a subtlety to this. There's types of culture. So, for example, very quickly... The, uh, the five types of culture that's worth just explaining for anyone listening to this is you can have a star model that relies on a culture where it's about indulging your best players, the guys that carry the team. You can have a 
autocratic culture that comes down to like a head coach or a powerful figure just deciding the way things are. You can have a bureaucratic culture, which is a culture where there's lots of rules and regulations uh, and it's almost uh, run by like a, a, a committee, whether that's a players or coaches. You can have an engineering culture where the only real focus is on skills and skill development. Or you can have what they call a commitment culture. And a commitment culture is about having a really clear set of behaviours, a sense of purpose, and a clearly set of non-negotiable behaviours. Now, what all the evidence says is they all work at different times, but if you want a sustained, almost guaranteed model that works, a commitment model is the one that will give you the most sustainability uh, of success. It will outperform the others over, over a longer period. So most people, when they say we want to work on culture, effectively are saying we want a commitment culture, and that requires you to then nail nail your colours to the mast and say, okay, what are the behaviours that, that define this culture? It's almost like what are the rules of the game? If you want to become a member of this culture, we'll tell you the rules of the game. Because your experience for you and Kyle will be the same as mine. People don't sleepwalk their way into a high-performing culture. You don't find yourself there by accident. At some stage, you make a commitment that you want to be a part of this. So what... If, you, if, somebody, if you're asking people to make that commitment, you have an obligation to be able to articulate these are the rules of the game. These are the standards of behaviour that you're going to be held to account to. Now, we talk about behaviours, not values, is an important characteristic because values are easy to say. A behaviour, you have to give me evidence of it. So you have to back it up. So talk about that. And secondly, you don't have too many of them. So ideally, you'd have no more than three. So... In an organisation like that, if you're then nailing your colours to the mast, sometimes there'll be people that just don't work within that culture and say, this doesn't speak to me. And that's why if you can remove the ambiguity of bringing somebody in and before you bring them in, you say, this is what you're going to be held to account to, then they have a choice to say, well, that's either right and I'll accept those conditions or it doesn't feel right at that stage. Or maybe we walk away without, without coming into conflict with each other. So there's, there was a lovely phrase that when I was researching at Barcelona, uh, there was a guy called Chiki Bagheerestein who was the director of football there. Now, he does the same role at Manchester City. And he had a great phrase that I think is really apposite when it comes to talk about culture. He said, uh, Barcelona, he said, your, your talent will get you as far as the dressing room door. So he said, so that is almost like the prerequisite. You have to be prodigiously talented. But the second bit is your behaviours will decide how long we keep you within that dressing room. So it's almost like you... So you have to be good to get that far, but then after that, it's about how you behave. So it's not just about talent. So to go back to your example, with like the Kevin Peterson one is, is quite rightly famous. Now, I don't know a lot about it because obviously there's all kinds of complexity that will happen behind the scenes. But what I would say in a situation like that is, if you have a star culture you indulge Kevin Peterson and because he gets you the runs and, and, and it almost doesn't matter how he conducts himself as long as he delivers on uh, on the field. And that'll work for a short period of time as long as Kevin Peterson is delivering. But the moment he stops delivering, indulging him suddenly starts to become unfair or perceived as um, not adding value for other players and it will create dysfunction. 
So there was an example at Real Madrid that went down the Galactico model. And there was a great phrase from a, a coach I interviewed once called Diego Lopez that said the trouble with a Galactico model or a star culture is he said everybody wants to be the head waiter and nobody wants to wash the dishes. So it's mm-hmm. almost like the back of house stuff is what will end up derailing you. So if you indulge Kevin Peterson, what about the guys that maybe don't have his talent but are working hard in the background or contributing to the team in other ways and they see that you're treating somebody unfairly that isn't necessarily delivering when it matters? That's where you start to create this function and that's where your culture can very quickly split into cliques and divisions and things like that. So I think the powerful thing here is if you have a set of behaviours and you remove ambiguity and say these are the standards that we're going to hold people to account, that is where it removes ambiguity and creates a sense of certainty for people. Mm. Damien, I've heard you talk about cultural architects before leaders without title and it's very interesting before you progressed on that when I was listening I've I've read uh, Robin Sharma's book Leadership or The Leader Without the Title and I think it was I think it was his very first book that I read oh, I read The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari but the Leader Leader Without a Title and it was very much about um, when I was talking about leadership growing through sport was how I was trying to um, get the message across to young guys that there was no need for a title to step into that leadership role or at least try and lead by example, or at least try to lead through his actions and everything like that. Um, the cultural architect side of thing is, is very interesting because we used it very successfully in the Sevens team where we had uh, the, these drivers, these individual drivers of, of the, uh, the culture. The one thing I did hear you talk about with the three attributes, the three qualities that they need to have, um, I think it was, yeah. and, and how valuable they are and how they can severely derail it if you're just missing one of the qualities. Yeah, so, I, I mean, thank you. Thanks for sort of raising it, Carl, because um, I find this the most fascinating area when uh, when you work with teams is this phrase. Um, now, the phrase comes from um, a Norwegian psychologist called Willy Raleo. Um, so um, it really sort of resonated with me when I heard it 20-odd years ago, this idea of architects. Um, and these are the guys... So what we know is that when you put anybody into a group, a hierarchy will emerge. A hierarchy always emerges that we always have alphas that will come to the fore. Now, technically within a sporting context, these alphas will emerge on one of two criteria, social or technical. So they're either the best players, so when they speak, everybody defers to them and listens to them, or they're sort of those gregarious, larger-than-life characters that when they speak, people sort of defer to them. So... That hierarchy emerges whether we like it or not. Now, the question is, um, are you creating the conditions where there's a third criteria of people can emerge just through their own example of their behaviours? So now, if you can marry that up and you have the best players or the social leaders that are also demonstrating the behaviours, you almost fast forward the cultural processes that you're trying to embed. So you, so you say it doesn't it, it doesn't matter whether it's social or technical if if they're married up with the correct behaviors then they're good for the job yeah. absolutely whereas if you think of it on the opposite way so if you think if you flip the coin over and you go if you've got these leaders that are actively undermining the culture and being almost cultural assassins that they're turning up late when one of your standards might be about punctuality or 
the, uh, their sort of um, their they lack professionalism, and one of your trademark behaviours is about being professional and squeezing every drop or whatever it is. They start to set the example there that people go, well, if they do it, I'll I'll follow their lead. So we're wired to want to follow the alphas, and if the alphas are sort of demonstrating the behaviours, the credibility immediately starts to accelerate. So, so the the challenge is to create the climate where that's the case. So when you do like leadership groups, for example, and, and, and I know um, through speaking with Tom that he sort of facilitates that with the Stormers, for example. Um, when you do leadership groups, traditionally the criteria for selections for a leadership group is uh, you, uh, you ask the players to vote for it. And again, you look at it, they'll either vote for technical or social characters. Whereas if you can include a third, if you can remove them and say, let's agree the behaviours, and then you say, vote for the players that embody these behaviours. What I found in my experience by doing that is, you often get, some of the alphas will still be there on the technical or social thing. But the other thing is, you'll sometimes get outliers that will emerge. So I'll give you an example. I was doing some work a few years ago with a, a Premier League team here. And it was the classic scenario of coming in during a crisis period. So they were um, in um, the relegation spots. Um, they had a manager that had been sacked. And there was a lot of turmoil going on behind the scenes. So I started working with the, um, with the first team group. And we agreed a set of behaviours. And the three we came up with were sensible hard work. So it was about just do your job. Don't do somebody else's job. Just do your job and work hard at uh, making sure that you're prepared. The second one was about persistence because they said, we're not going to win games in the first 10 minutes, but we might win them in the last 10. So it's about being persistent and relentless. And then the third one was uh, uh, unselfishness. So it was about put the team above yourself effectively. So these were the three behaviours we had. So when we'd agreed these, I got the players. I said, I, I gave them uh, two votes. I said, out of the squad, who uh, who embodies these behaviours? Not who's loud, not who's the best player. Who shows up with these behaviours consistently? And there was a guy in this in this dressing room squad that was on the fringes. So his story was really interesting. He'd, he'd been bought uh, by the club from the lower leagues and he'd come into the squad and he wasn't as talented as the other players. But his work ethic, his persistence, his willingness to squeeze every drop out of, uh, out of the ability he, he had was exemplary. Now, what was interesting was the rest of the squad hated him. That he was very much an outsider. And um, he'd been bullied a little bit before I'd got there. I'd heard stories about him being sort of bullied around and things like that. But what was fascinating was the club were looking to send him out on loan. And while this, these discussions were happening, I got this vote. And he was in the top five. He was in the top five. There was about 15 guys in the squad that voted him as the embodiment of these behaviours. And if you'd have gone to any coaching group beforehand and said, give me a list, he, this guy wasn't in it. He was nowhere near it. He wasn't even for consideration. So this is intriguing. So I went to some of the players that I had a decent relationship with and I said, you voted for this guy. Why is it? And they went... And they articulated it brilliantly. They said, you didn't ask us whether we liked him. You asked us whether he embodied those behaviours, and he does. He's the first in, last out. His preparation's great. 
you know, he works with the young players, he spends time doing that, and they went, that's why we've selected him. And what was really interesting was, even the way it shifted the identity of this particular player, so from going to feeling as an outsider, as not somebody fitting in, to recognising that you don't have to be popular, you just have to set the standards and lead by example. He went from being a fringe player to one of the central players over the next two or three years. So I think often it's the job of coaches to 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 create the criteria, to set the barometers of what selection is about that allows cultural architects to then blossom. Damien, can I ask, what, what effect does that social side of things have on things? You said the guys didn't, nobody really liked him, they didn't identify with him, but I know, I know from experience that um, the ability to assimilate on a social level has an effect on how you lead and how sort of we perform as a, as a team. 100% agree, Kyle. And I think, in, in, so in this particular case, I think the guy was a bit socially awkward. So I'll give you a really simple example was that he wasn't a drinker. So he didn't like drinking. So when the players went on like social occasions, he because he felt awkward that he wasn't a drinker, he just wouldn't go. And I remember talking to him about when, the, when, the, so, so when his selection to this leadership group had occurred, I said to him, you're not helping yourself here that you can just be clear with them and say, I'll come with you, but I don't, I don't want to drink. You even make up an excuse and say, I'm on medication. doesn't matter if you want to sort of save face, but go out with them socially and just be in their company because, as you say, that can often... That can... Like, I'm not necessarily a big advocate of the team that drinks together, wins together and things like that, but I, I agree with you that meeting up with people in sort of a more relaxed social environment is the glue. It's the social glue that bonds us together. We get to know people better uh, and it facilitates it. So I'm absolutely an advocate of you, uh, of that with you. But like I say, I think the danger is that if we only set the criteria of technical or social, you don't necessarily get the cultural architects come into the fore. Yeah, it's essentially a popularity contest then. Yeah. So we, interesting, we, we never... As a leadership group, something that was part of for many years, we never had a vote. It was never a vote. It was never down to the players. Anything. It was more as the group. So the group would evolve over time. Over the years, one person would leave and another person would come in. And the, the way that we looked at the individuals coming in was mostly by we'd look at age. We'd try to get a younger guy to join the group pretty soon. And it was it was a behaviors-based thing. But we've... I never even thought about leaving it up to the group to decide because I just I worry that again it is a popularity contest but I understand now if you're able to define your behaviors that set your your you know these are the what determines a cultural architect then that becomes uh, the, the measurement of what's a good uh, driver yeah I, so my experience uh, Kyle on, on 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 the reason I'd advocate a vote is because I think it has a couple of effects. I think if you can go to the players that have been voted for and you say to them, and what I would encourage you to do is don't just say you have a vote. You have to give a reason when you give a vote as well. So if players are forced to think about it. So it's not just put the name down, but you have to be able to say on our criteria is we're looking for behaviours. So what behaviours is it that this guy does that you voted for? And I think it becomes... Don't underestimate how powerful that is to receive those votes and the feedback. Because what, in political terms, it's almost like you're giving them a mandate to lead. So if you can go to a player and say, you know what, 
70% of the guys in the dressing room here recognise you as a leader by example. And when you speak or when you, or when you make a demand, the 70% of that dressing room prepared to listen to you because you have credibility. The confidence it gives them to feel that they can lead because they've been given permission to do so is, uh, is, is, is pretty significant. I think what I would also say is that, that you make them aware as well that, that that requires continued leadership by example. So another way that I would advocate that culture becomes front and centre of this is you regularly get players to feed back on each other and score each other and that includes the leadership group. And so when they know that this isn't a position for life, as long as I'm here at the club, I'm in the leadership group, you get them to realise that we'll continually keep monitoring and focusing on this. It makes them realise that once you're selected, you can't just rest on your laurels. It, it relies on you to, uh, to go and do this. But the third factor I would say is that if you give them the mandate to lead, that... that what I often find is helpful for the leadership group is to give them two tasks. And the two tasks are catch people in and catch people out. So when you see somebody turning up or doing extras in training or working or doing sort of CPD or doing game prep and things like that, as a leader, as one of the cultural architects, just acknowledge it. Just let them know that you've seen it and you like it. If that, if one of your behaviors says hard work or professionalism, but then when somebody isn't doing it, you have to catch them out and let them know that that's not acceptable and just a quiet word with them to say, this isn't what we do here. That's their responsibility to lead by example and then to catch people in and catch people out. I think they're a pretty simple set of instructions. Cool. and um, you're so many things that I want to ask you. Um, you know, you've alluded to your podcast, which I will say again at the end and in the intro, it's an unbelievable podcast that I enjoy listening to you all the time. So, so thank you for the work you're doing there. Um, you, you interviewed Sir Clive Woodward the other day, who of course has got a, a lot more accolades than Tom Dawson Scrub or any of us put together. Uh, one thing that I was interested in is they, and I, I just go on your five sort of cultural ways. He spoke about the rules they had and they created rules as almost a democracy. And Carl's going to laugh at me now because I always say democracy is overrated. Um, but they created these, and I found like they had a lot of rules. How transferable is that to different organizations, companies, sports teams, having lots of rules that you stick to? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question, Tom. Um, I don't necessarily agree with it. So, um, the, the, because I think when you have lots of rules, you end up policing them. And I think you, you end up moving more towards the bureaucratic type of culture that I described earlier, where you're constantly policing, or oh, he turned up late, so therefore we need to fine him so much and you spend more time then having that conversation and chasing him up and things like that. I, and that's where I think in, in the model of a commitment culture, which is around behaviours, behaviours are clear and transparent. So somebody either behaves that way or they don't. Da a rule. Damien, I, I got a different sense from that, that discussion that you guys had. I, I got a sense that they were trying to build something from the foundation up. And I, and I feel that when you're building something brand new and fresh, you need to put rules in place. They have two rules and organically that will become behaviors and when the behaviors start to uh, settle in and they become part of you know who the team is the, that that sort of culture or the what the team identifies as then they become less policed 
you know, but, but at the beginning, it's absolutely necessary to put structure, to put somebody who enforces that and somebody who polices that and might, might feel like that for a while until it becomes natural. Yeah, I think that's a really fair challenge, Kyle. So, so I suppose the question is, where are you on the scale in terms of building your culture? Yeah. So I think I, 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 so I think you're describing the start of the culture and I'm describing when it maybe yes. is more yeah, sure. mature. But yeah, I absolutely accept that. So the example uh, Sir Clive spoke about was um, the Lombardi time that they put in place. So he just asked the players about, yeah, so he, 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 so he said he just opened the question of what's your relationship like with time? And then the players went, well, what do you mean? And he went, well, what's our expectations in terms of turning up for meetings? And I think when you speak about expectations, by definition of that, if you can agree a, a standard, a common expectation of you turn up 10 minutes early for every meeting, regardless of it, and they, then you gave it the nickname of Lombardi time, I think then, very quickly, that might be classed as a rule. But if the players then quickly embrace that, they own it, they police it, it that the, the, they'll call you out on it. Uh, I think it's more, I think my sort of, um, how would I describe it? Uh, my sort of reservation about rules is that I've been into some cultures where it feels almost like a police state, you know what I mean, where, it, where, where the rules um, almost don't give credit to players. It's almost like they need to be told everything that everything needs to be scripted for them. And I think that doesn't allow for subjectivity then, that sometimes, um, um, say, I, I'm trying to think of a good example of it, but um, I remember sort of working in one club where, where, where there was quite a notable figure that was going through some personal troubles at the time that he didn't want the rest of the team to know about. So some of the stuff that was going on meant that he uh, maybe was a bit sloppy in terms of dress or training and things like that. And that was because he had a father that was seriously ill that he was caring for and things like that. And and, and, and I think in the end, we had to go and ask the players to relax the rules with him for a while, just because it's not, it, uh, it's not helpful. He's creating a lot of anxiety. So I suppose it depends where you are in the maturity of the organisation. I agree, at the start, the rules are building blocks, but you'd hope that eventually they just become accepted behaviours. It, it does seem like there's a bit of a, in that sort of area where you're talking about police debt, that there would be almost an imbalance between catching people out over catching people in. Absolutely, and I think the ratio for that, and again, this is a, I mean, that, that sort of leads us into an interesting area about what, um, about the balance of it. So I, uh, all the evidence, all the research on this topic says you need a ratio of catching people in five times more than catching them out. Yeah, five times more. So, so, it, it, it's, so you acknowledge the good stuff at least five times more than you have to call out the bad stuff. Now, it was interesting on this that, again, speaking to head coaches, um, one of the coaches we, uh, we interviewed last year was a guy called Sean Dyche, the Burnley football manager. And uh, he... He's got quite a gruff, dour approach, and he's very aware that that's the perception. I mean, it's not an accurate perception, but he's aware that that's how he said. Like his voice sounds very downbeat and angry a lot of the time, <laughs> and he said, "I can't help my voice." So to compensate for that, he works on a ratio of eight to one. He said, "I need to catch people in a lot more frequently than I catch them out to try and shift." 
some of that perception. But all the evidence, there's research of a guy called John Gottman at Washington University that says the magic ratio is five to one. Uh, and, 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 and again, I think that's a really powerful point you made, Carl, that if you can say to your cultural architects, go overboard with it in many ways, just keep acknowledging the good stuff and letting people know it, it almost like, if you think of it like paying money into a bank account, the more you've got in the bank account, when you need to make a withdrawal and say to somebody, stop that, that's not accepting. You've got plenty of credit in the bank to be able to make that withdrawal from. Damien, I've heard you speak a lot about, and I think you and I share this sentiment around like trying to copy paste cultures. So yeah. I, I, I recount a story, Kyle, I was sent a message by someone with a link to an article and the specific team was, um, the, the, the interview was talking about what this team had done culturally. And this yeah. specific coach sent me the WhatsApp and said, can you implement this culture in my team? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was like, give, well, give me five minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. How, how much time you got? And, and, but it made me think a lot about, you know, um, there is a lot of research around culture is, yes, it's the way we do things and our behaviors, but it's also, it's impacted below the surface by your motivational roots, the, the, the climb, all that kind of stuff, yeah. the emotional ground. How, how do you... How do you help people understand creating their own culture that is authentic to them rather than getting down the copy paste? And I know you'll talk about the sweep the sheds thing, so I'll, I'll let you go there. No, no, no. I'm not, I didn't know. Like, I, I use that as a daft example. That, that it's a great I, example. Like, yeah, well, I've been into so many organisations and the, and when they say, oh, we're talking about culture, are we? And we go, yeah, yeah. And they go, oh, well, we sweep the sheds. And you go, why is that? And they go, well, well, I read this book about New Zealand rugby and I read that uh, they sweep the dressing room after every time they go in. And you go, right, that's great. Why do you do it? And they go, well, we read this book about New Zealand. And you go, no, no, I get that. I know, I know you're telling me why New Zealand do it, what New Zealand do. And... Uh, I understand why New Zealand do it. It's about humility and respect and not getting above your station. I understand why they do it. I'm asking, why do you? And if your only answer to me is because New Zealand do it and they're successful, you're copying a culture. And copying it is a gimmick. And most people see through gimmicks pretty quickly. So if you were to say to me, we, uh, we clean the dressing room because our trademark behaviours are respect and humility... And they, there's nothing wrong with having similar behaviours to New Zealand. That's a different conversation that we're having. But, they, they, like, I've got a bigger version. You know, like, when you go into gyms and they have, like, quotes on the wall, like, quitters never win and winners never quit. And I say, get that shit down. Because it's not true. What are you trying to say here? That if sometimes somebody has to give up, that they're a quitter. So you wouldn't label... It's, it, they sound great and they're great catchphrases or memes, but... They actually don't speak to your culture. So if you would have on the wall instead your non-negotiable behaviours, these are the rules of the game here, and we're just reminding you of them, that's far more effective than just putting up sort of colourful wallpaper or quotes and things like that. So I'm a really big advocate of people developing their own stuff, not copying uh, from others. I think... and. I don't want people to assume that you shouldn't look for, to others for best practice. Absolutely you should. That's part of what your podcast is about and what I like listening to it for because you're hearing the perspectives of others. But what really intrigues me is the methodology 
that has led to that outcome. Because if I can understand the methodology, I can decide whether I can adopt that methodology to reach our own conclusion. So a really simple way that I encourage anyone to do this, whether you're doing this with sort of an amateur team or a group of kids or whether you're doing it in sort of professional sport, is if you're serious about saying, right, let's adopt some of these ideas, do a really simple exercise that I call success leaves clues. And what I say is, you set the parameters of success. So you say, right, it might be our best ever game, our best season. It might be a certain performance. It might be a few moments. It almost doesn't matter. It's up to you to set the boundaries of what of what success looks like. And then do a proper deep dive exploration into how did we behave? How did we show up when we were good? What, did, what were we behaving like that led to us being good? And... The reason I advocate that is there's two there's two reasons why I think that is a really simple exercise to do, but is really effective. The first one is it's inclusive. So who doesn't have an opinion on success? So when you go and ask anyone about what good is, everybody's got an opinion on oh, it was because of this. So you go, right, great. So let's so everybody is invited to to speak about something that 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 they believe they have some knowledge or insight to share. The second and most important thing, though, is that it, it builds confidence because confidence comes from evidence. And what you're finding is evidence of where this has already happened. So you're not trying to copy another culture and say, wouldn't it be great if we could do this? What you're saying is, wasn't it fantastic when we did this? So you've got something tangible that, that, that say, so if we do that, we can do it again and again. So we get consistency in our culture by showing up with these behaviours. And I think that's a really effective starting point to then identify the behaviours that then leads to all those other things like selection, recruitment, promotion, and things like that. So Yeah, Damien, I heard you I heard you mention also around a similar topic, when you're good, you, you should be able to tell me why you're good so that when you're bad, we know what to fix. Yeah, so so like our conversation about your coffee shop earlier, Kyle, uh, and, and, and I said about the Dunning-Kruger law, yes. that's, like, that's the articulation of it, that if you're stupid, you're too stupid to know why you're stupid. So the example is like when, when you see these people go on talent shows and they say, oh, I want to sing like Mariah Carey, and then they open their mouth and sound like a cat being strangled. Part of the, it, the, it's amusing for us to watch, but the reason is, is that they don't understand the technical skills of being a great singer. So they think that singing in the shower is the equivalent of it because they don't understand it. Whereas when you're good at something, you've passed through that peak idiot stage of not knowing why. You've actually gone into the mastery stage of the valley of humility of asking questions and looking at the craft and understanding it and working on things that that gets you to a place of appreciation of what you're trying to work on. So what I find is high performers are able to tell you why they were high performers what, uh, because they've consistently been able to do it, whereas those that burn brightly for a while, sometimes it's a fluke that they've got there just through circumstances or, or, or a talent, but they've not studied that talent or the environment of what they're trying to do. So when it goes wrong... They externalise it. They go, oh, that coach didn't like me. Or that player wasn't it. Or I got an injury. Or that the conditions weren't right. Or the opponents did that. Whereas high performers are able to go, you know what, my preparation wasn't right. Or I didn't deliver on this. Or, you know, 
I need to focus more on this aspect of my game. And they internalize it because they're in that valley of humility of asking questions and exploring it to achieve a level of mastery. So I think all high, like in terms of cultures, cultures need to get beyond that peak idiot stage of copying what others are doing and get into that valley of humility and say, what do we do? What is it that we define our culture to be successful at and be able to articulate it? Damien, uh, we, we, we're sort of running low on time, so I'm almost going to borrow your, your method that you use in your podcast of making questions that I'd love to spend 10 minutes on into like rapid fires, <laughs> uh, if, 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 if I'm mad. If I um, quick, quickly, at the moment, in the current world we're living in, maintaining or building energy and relationships in a remote way is very spoken about. Just your brief pricey or thinking around how people can continue to build quality relationships, maintain energy in this way, in the, in the way we're living. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. That's a really good one. Um, before we had children, I'll give you a, a bit of an anecdote. Uh, before we had children, uh, like my wife and I were very aware that we didn't know anything about being parents beyond our own experience of being parented. And uh, I remember sort of being quite anxious about it. <laughs> So we went on a parenting skills course, right, just to try and understand it, because I was thinking, I I know that I don't know a lot about it. And we went on this course, and it was brilliant, right? We just showed up, and there's a really lovely lady that that ran it for us. And the first exercise she did was, she got us to sit down, there was quite a few of us on it, and she said, write down your best memories of your own childhood, right? So... Everybody writes them down and everyone sort of be talking in groups and then we put these ideas forward and she puts them up on the chart and they're all like different uh, examples and she said, what do you notice? What's the common ground about all of it? And there was two things, right? The first thing was, she said, your parents were with you. So it was things like being in the park and your parents pushing you on the swing or your dad playing like footy with you, uh, something like that. And then the second thing was, there was no electronic devices involved in it. It wasn't expensive, was the point she was making. It wasn't like, I remember going on this amazing holiday as the standout, or it wasn't like, I. it was when I got that really expensive pair of trainers. It was, your parents were there, and it was inexpensive. It was about giving them the gift of time and attention, was the essence of it. And she was like, that's the model that you remember for parenting. So that was almost like the foundation stones of the course we went on. And I think what this pandemic has led us to is to go back to those basics, to go, you know what, it's not about doing um, elaborate things with each other. It's about giving people the benefit of your time and attention and just doing it in sort of low-tech ways. Do you know what I mean? So I think don't. I, I, I think if nothing else, it's reminded us of, uh, of the basics of relationships are not built on big gestures or big high profile things it's about the quiet social glue of giving people time and attention and I think so by definition of that don't um, respond how people want to be responded to so some people are quite happy to be quite insular and just get a text message and if that's how they respond go at their level of comfort if somebody wants to do a zoom chat make the time to do that and don't underestimate the value of just time and attention um, uh, during this period. Cool answer. Cool answer. Okay, two more quick ones. 
Go on. Sorry, that wasn't a quick response. So <laughs> oh, it, was, it was. It was. It was brilliant. <laughs> that was, it was. Cool. That was generally perfect. What? Tom, like Tom, doesn't like to venture down the parenting like road, but that was like it's hundred percent over the last six months. It's it's time and attention and and something low tech and and essentially simple, just simple to do. Yeah. Go for a bloody walk in the forest. That's where the best yeah, memories are. Yeah, there's no money involved no, in that. Nothing. So when people go, oh, I can't afford it, you're not asking to pay anything now. Yeah. It's, <laughs> Just go do it. What's the one question that you're trying to answer at the moment? Oh, wow. Um, trying to achieve balance um, is the one that I, I constantly struggle with. Um, I think um, try, the... When I left school, um, I did a sort of reflection on myself and I remember thinking, I wonder what my teachers would have said about me. And I think the conclusion was they'd have said I was well-intentioned but a pain in the arse. And the reason is that... So I wasn't sort of trying to cause trouble, but I got bored easily. And by getting bored easily, I realised that I need stimulation. I need to be doing uh, a variety of activities because if I'm not, I start getting sort of uh, pain in the arse and breaking things to see how it works. So I sort of tried to structure my life with that balance. So I like writing, I like researching, I like doing the podcast, I like working with teams. Um, but I'm also a father and a husband and a son. So I'm trying to get that balance of keeping the stimulation while making enough time for the right areas is something that I really struggle with. Cool, great. Last question, which we ask every guest. Um, if you had a to put a dream team together of three people, who would you choose, and why that particular combination? Oh wow! So a dream team, as in, so let me set the context uh, <laughs> in terms of a dream team of just people around you, like a cabal of advisors, sort of thing. Is that what you mean? The ambiguity is there on purpose, <laughs> but however you choose to interpret it, yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, Wow. Um, I, well, I'll cause offence. So if I didn't put like my wife in there, that, uh, Every, that, everybody's I'm, put their wife in. <laughs> they? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of playing it, and I sort of went to things like, oh, I'd get Alex Ferguson in, and then I'm like, well, actually, my wife would be offended if she ever heard that. Yeah, I'd put him in above her. the door. <laughs> yeah. So um, no, I'd have to put my wife in there. Uh, because she just, um, like, she, she's fantastic. I think uh, she was the first person that, like, I met her a long, long time ago now, but she was um, the first person that ever truly uh, believed in me before I believed in myself. And uh, I think that she sort of is that source of uh, advice and wisdom and sort of just calls things out and lets me know when... Um, my balance is out of kilter and things like that. Um, so she would be in there. Um, I'm going to go down for... Um, I'd put my dad in there. Um, now, unfortunately, my dad's very poorly these days. He's got advanced dementia. So there's a little bit of a, of a nostalgia there. But um, he's, uh, he's been quite poorly now for quite a long time. So uh, we care for him at home with my mum. But he doesn't... Um, he doesn't remember who we are now um, and things like that. So um, when I see him, I sort of, he's still with us, which is a real privilege, but I'm, I, I often feel that sense of loss. Like dementia is a cruel illness where the person's there, but they've been sort of stripped away layer by layer. 
and I sometimes really miss uh, his wisdom and his value. So my dad was a boxing coach, uh, uh, quite a successful boxing coach. So I ended up spending a lot of time with him. Sort of, I've worked as a coach alongside him and things like that. And I think sort of just being in his company and sort of listening to his wisdom uh, was something that um, I miss an awful lot. I was telling somebody about it recently that uh, I'll give you just a quick anecdote that um, just before he got ill, this is about 10 years ago, he had a guy fighting for a world title at uh, Madison Square Garden in New York. And uh, the guy that we were working with, was, uh, he was, he, 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 it was a huge step up. He was fighting a Puerto Rican champion, uh, like a, a Hall of Famer called uh, Miguel Cotto. And uh, they were still doing all these little tricks so to disrupt us. So we're in our dressing room. They sent one of their advisors in. And uh, you know, like when the trainer's wrapping the bandages around the hand of a fighter, their advisor... Wait, and it's quite a long, detailed process, and it takes about 20 minutes. And he waited till the end of the 20 minutes, and he went, do it again, I'm not happy. And it was like, what? And he was like, do it again, I'm not happy. So the New York boxing official said, do it again. So my dad did it again, and he, and he waited again, end of the process. This Puerto Rican guy went, do it again, still not happy. So the New York official went, do it again. So he did it again, and at this stage, just as he gets to the end of it, this guy again kicks off. I'm still not happy about it. I want it doing again. So my dad, he, he was 70 at this stage. This guy must have been in his like early 40s. My dad turns to this official for New York and I, could, and I knew what he was going to do next, which is why I'm watching it. And my dad goes to this official from New York. He goes, who am I listening to here? Am I listening to you or am I listening to this guy? And this Puerto Rican guy goes, you're listening to me. So my dad jumps up and headbutts him. <laughs> right, and puts him on his ass, and it all gets kicked off, and things like that. And he, the the Puerto guy gets led out of the dressing room. And at that moment, my dad turned to the boxer we were working with, and he said to him, "Nobody's bullying us tonight. We're not being bullied here tonight." And to me, the reason I offer it was it was just a brilliant example of coaching. Because when I asked him afterwards and said, "Why did you do it?" he said. He said he wasn't, he didn't feel angry about it. But on the third occasion when he was bandaging his hands, he noticed the guy's hands were starting to tremble. And the mind tricks this guy was doing was starting to have an effect. So he was starting to get nervous and adrenaline. So he said he was trying to think while he was doing it, how can I shift his focus? And <laughs> despite giving away 30 years of age, it was like, let's just create a scene here. But I need to give him that message of whatever goes on, we're not going to be bullied in this environment. We need to stand up for ourselves. And it was just like when I talk about why I wish he, he was still with us in, in in sort of spirit, it's that kind of wisdom that he could articulate it. So he wasn't doing it to be a thug. He was doing it because there was a, a clear rationale behind everything he did. The, the interesting thing for me there is that the, the trigger for your dad was actually on his athlete. It wasn't like so. I think so often we focus on the environment around us, look at the different environment settings, and go, "Oh, we need to change because of that." But I suppose your dad was fine to go on with it. But at the moment he saw his boxer trembling, that's when he decided this, this is where I need to intervene. You know, it wasn't based on well the weather's changed now we need to change. No, if if nothing's wrong with the players, then it's fine. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very much, and I think that was really, it. Was sort of like. Uh, just I'm offering that as as one of sort of like a, a lifetime's worth of anecdotes, but to me it was just a really I'd like I remember saying to him afterwards I said I don't think I've ever been prouder of you in that moment like like not because of the violence but it was more the fact that 
it, it, it was that final message of nobody bullies us tonight. And it was such like, you know, it was a guy from sort of a, 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 like a poor area of Manchester and he's there at sort of like the Hall of Boxing in Madison Square Garden. And he still had that, it, like, he still had the essence of, but I'm going to be me. I'm not coming to this environment and I'm not going to react to the situation I'm in. I'm still just going to be me and show up as me. And if people treat us kindly, we'll respond kindly. But if somebody wants to fuck with us, you know, I'm happy to sort of accommodate them. So that's <laughs> loss. Yes, that's awesome. Yeah, so and great story. Wife, wife, dad, last person, briefly. Uh, last one. Um, you know what? I'm going to throw in um, um, Sir Alex Ferguson into that. Uh, only because, again, I just think he'd be a rich source of anecdotes. And I quite like those old school values of being decent. Like, I, I, I think a lot of people have a perception of Ferguson, but I think at the heart of it is a decent man that uh, has got some decent values. Uh, and I think that, that uh, they never go out of fashion. So I'd include him in it as well. Well, I think he's in pretty good company with your wife and your father. Yeah. <laughs> what a team. What a team. Damien, what an absolute privilege um, to spend time with you and chat to you. Uh, I know that people listening are going to love this. Um, maybe just give them a quick praise as to where to find you and follow you, social media or Yeah, podcast. okay. Uh, I mean, I've, I've, I've come off social media um, quite a lot in the last year. Um, Partly because we go back to our first question uh, about kindness. <laughs> I just was starting to feel that um, um, I read two really interesting books last year that had quite an impact on me that might be of interest to your listeners. One was a book by a guy called Rolf de Belly that said, stop reading the news. And it's only a short book, but it was basically gives you a reason of stop allowing yourself to be affected by external events like that somebody else has decided you need to read about. So Stop Reading the News had an effect on me and a lot of my news sources came from social media. And then the other book that had a real, like a really significant effect was a book by a guy called Jonathan Haidt that talks about the coddling of the American mind. And he speaks about social media does three things to us, if that's where we get in a lot of our news sources. It divides everything into good and bad. So it, it's binary. You're either on the right side or the wrong side. The second thing it does is uh, people mistake feelings for facts so people can feel violated rather than just accept it's a different it's just a feeling that you're offering and then the third one is that it's almost like an echo chamber so you only hear your own views being repeated back to you so I, I, I it's, it was that and then the third factor is that my son got his first phone and, uh, it, and I thought I need to role model better habits here to him that I can't ask him not to be on social media apps and things like that without role modeling it. So <laughs> that's a, uh, an explanation that I thought, so I'm not really on social media these days, but I do have a website called Liquid Thinker where if people want to drop me an email, um, I'll always reply to that. And I also think, because that tells you something about somebody's intent. So if you're on social media, it's easy to write, you're a twat and not think anything of it. Yes. Whereas if somebody wants to go to the email, trouble of finding your email to write that you're a twat, there's at least a conversation you can have to understand why. So, so yeah, uh, liquidthinker.com is the, uh, is the email. Damien, that, that book, The Coddling of the American Mind, I think Joe Rogan talks about it extensively, but now that you've recommended it, I'll read it. Oh, honestly, it, Kyle, honestly, it's, I found it had such a 
profound effect on me that I like Jonathan Haidt anyway. Um, I've read the first book he did called The Happiness Hypothesis, I thought was amazing. So when I knew this was coming out, and what he basically says is that he looked at, um, so he teaches at Virginia University, and he noticed that there was a distinct change in behaviour of students uh, from about 2010 onwards, which is when his research starts. And rather than just go, oh, kids are different these days, he, he was self-aware enough to know, well, why are they different? Why are these behaviours very different than previous? And his conclusion was, it was the first generation of students that had grown up online being on with social media as a presence in their life. So then when he goes to explore it in more detail, you start to understand how these kind of narratives shift for individuals. So it's just kids are being conditioned and, uh, and we all are in some ways. So like I say, that if you see it in the political discourse that, that you either hate Trump or you love him, well, why can't I be in the middle? Why can't I just not understand or why can't I see the middle ground? Well, social media doesn't allow that. So you get good versus evil sort of conversations. The other one around feelings for facts, like he has a really interesting one that he says like peanut allergies have gone through the roof since 2000 across the world. Peanut allergies have gone through the roof. And he asks, well, why is that the case? And he goes, well, it's because we, we prevent peanuts from being in the environment of kids. So we don't build up any immunity to peanut dust, which has meant that now when people do experience it, it becomes quite traumatic. And he goes, and it's almost like this echo, this echo chamber of opinions means that if you're never exposed to a conflicting argument or a different point of view, when you eventually do hear it, when life eventually does present it to you, a lot Big of people shock. find it violating. Yeah. yeah, it becomes a shock. And then, like say, mistaking feelings from facts where when people go, oh, I feel really offended by what you just said. Well, it's just a feeling. You know, let's work it through. Let's explain it. And that feeling is temporary. But rather than sort of react, making permanent decisions based on temporary emotions. So it just had an impact on me to, to reflect on myself. And I realised I was spending a lot of time on social media, sort of putting articles out there or quotes I'd read. And I just thought, ah, just just come off it a little bit and uh, and start, get, start getting new news sources from elsewhere. Thank you. Cool. Damien, thank you so, so, so much. What, I've what loved it. it. And um, yeah, th- yeah, and we'll be listening to your podcast. Uh, I will religiously listen to your podcast and remain oh, well, in touch. You. So thank you very much. No, I love it. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. And for- listen, thank you both for for inviting me on, and thanks for thanks for your kindness and and sort of asking such such really thought provoking questions for me. So I've really enjoyed it, and I hope anyone that's got this far in it has as well. So uh, I'm really grateful to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Damien. Absolutely appreciate it, Damien. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Ciao, ciao.